restaurants all over the place in Chicago. I did a math. I did the math with a calculator. And it would take us 115 years to go to all the restaurants in Chicago if we went to a new one every week. There's so many restaurants for the same reason that there's so many gas stations. You always need a refill. So there's always demand. It's a fact of life. Not long after you've eaten to your full, you're hungry again. I can think of all too many Thanksgiving dinners where afterwards I literally feel like I'm going to burst. I literally experience something probably as close as humans can experience to hibernation. But then the next day, I'm already ready for a turkey sandwich. It's just the way it works. It doesn't last. This fact is true of humans, but I think it's especially evident in hummingbirds. I read in an article this statement. Hummingbirds are continuously hours away from starving to death. And the reason why is their metabolism is so high. And their metabolism is so high because their movement is so rapid. Their hearts beat 20 times per second. A hummingbird's heart just beat 20 times. Their wings flap 80 times per second. 80 wing flaps, just like that. I tried it for myself, and the best I can get is about three. Like, there it is. And if you did that for about a minute, I'm pretty sure we would all need a nap. Hummingbirds need to constantly eat in order to survive, so they eat about 12 times their body weight every day. And they're actually choosy. They reject every flower unless it has at least 10% sugar in its nectar. 12 times its body weight. So I did the math with a calculator, and that would be like you and I eating a ton of melted Skittles and then needing a ton of Mountain Dew the next day just to survive. Add some Doritos to the equation, and it sounds like my junior high dream come true. They're constantly searching out food. They go to one flower, to the next flower, to the next flower. They have to visit over 100 flowers a day. And in the end, it just looks like a fast-forward version of the human life. Humans going to restaurants, humans going to grocery stores, humans going to markets. It ends up like a magnifying glass on our condition. We always have to feel this absence in our stomachs. It's called hunger. It's a real need. And for all too many people in this world, it's a real threat. In John chapter 6, Jesus moves with compassion to meet this real need. But he doesn't just stop there. Like last week, he takes the opportunity to pinpoint a deeper need. Spiritual hunger. It's a deeper need and a greater threat. Spiritual hunger is an absence in our souls, and it grows. And unless we find bread for our souls, we will live our lives like spiritual hummingbirds, feverishly looking for anything to satisfy this deep-seated hunger, as if our lives depended on it. And they do. 
as we've seen in the last few weeks, witnesses shed light on the question, who is Jesus? Today we will see Jesus through the eyes of thousands of hungry people, thousands of witnesses. Their testimony is how Jesus met their need with the power of God. The question for them and for us that hangs over their story is this. Could that also be true for our spiritual hunger? For the vacancy in our hearts? For the absence in our souls? Or in other words, is there a rest from this incessant search to satisfy our souls? So we turn to the account in John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles or your iPads or your iPhones, please turn there. And just a bit of this information on this passage. The Holy Spirit led Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to all highlight this event. It's one of the very few where this happens. And so it stands out in speaking to us about Jesus. So even if we've heard this story 5,000 times, it would be good to ask ourselves, what would God have us learn about Jesus today? How can he stand out to us once more? So before we really dig in, let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Lord, in many ways, I bring this morning something that is not too much different than just a few loaves of bread and a few measly fish. But you can somehow multiply what we bring and miraculously feed us. So I pray that you would feed our souls today, deep down inside, and that we would come before you hungry to listen and ready to see more of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we delve into this passage, we'll chart its course in five unfolding stages. Its context, the crisis, the climax, the conflict, and then finally, the cure. So the context is found in verses 1 through 4. We read, After this, Jesus went away to the other side, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast at of the Jews is at hand. The context describes the situation and two major details come to our attention. The setting and the central people involved. The setting consists of the place and the time and if we're not careful, it's easy to skip over this small detail but it's actually not small. It helps us understand what's going on here. It helps us see the big picture. The place described in verse 1 is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This was a place In the middle of nowhere, it was in a wilderness area. And then we find out the time in verse 4, it was near the Passover. And this detail is placed there on purpose, because otherwise you could skip from verse 3 to verse 5 seamlessly. 
So it's placed there to tell us something. We're supposed to be thinking about the Passover. The Passover was a time the people here would have fresh in their minds. So the setting sets the stage in a deliberate way. As we watch this all unfold, we're supposed to have in the back of our minds the imagery of Moses in the wilderness. And we're also introduced here to the central people. The first mentioned is Jesus. Rumors of Jesus had been spreading through the land. No one had done the kind of things that he had done. No one had spoken the kind of things that he was speaking about. In chapter 5, he had just healed a man in Jerusalem who had been immobile for 38 years. And then when he spoke, he called Jesus his father, making himself equal with God. He offered people everlasting life. He said then that the entirety of the Old Testament all pointed to him. Who could do such things and make such claims? He had created quite a stir. So then a crowd began to follow him. And that's who we see next. They had tracked Jesus down and interrupted his repeat. And interrupted his retreat. But he does not turn them away. And this here illustrates Jesus' compassion. In fact, Matthew and Mark make this clear. They say, when Jesus saw the crowd, when he saw all these people, even though he was in the middle of this retreat... He felt compassion. They interrupted his time of rest. And their need was literally massive. And they came to him somewhat selfish. But he had compassion on them, even when it was hard. And this is an example for you and I. You and I are called to have compassion, even when it's hard. Even when we're tired and we're overwhelmed. And this is not a call to nonstop compassion because we do need rest. But it is a call to nonstop openness to compassion. And our only hope in living this out is Jesus Christ living within. The same Jesus who showed this compassion here is the same Jesus that lives inside of you and I. So I've said it before. But I'll say it again and again and again as many times as I have to remind myself. If we have Jesus, we have compassion. Last, we're introduced to his disciples sitting there with Jesus. The disciples become the focus in the next stage of this event, the crisis. We read the crisis in verses 5 through 7. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. This is a crisis for his disciples, and Philip in particular. They were sitting there, Resting when thousands of people showed up at their back door. Philip must have looked to Jesus expecting him to do something. But then he finds Jesus looking to him. Asking him to respond. All eyes are on Philip now. What would he do? His dilemma is threefold. It's emotional. 
The background of this event is found in Mark. The disciples had just been sent out on their first missionary assignment. They had spent all this time telling people to repent, healing the sick, and casting out demons. And we find, it says in Mark, that they were so busy, they didn't even have time to eat. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But it can be so intense. You've got so much going on that you forget to eat. We have to remind Sarah Torres on Harvest of the First Fruits to eat. There's just so much to do. And so Jesus says to the disciples, come away and get some rest. And then thousands of people show up. They must have been so drained. Not only because of their frenzied pace, but also because of the drain of pouring out yourself, ministering to people. I can't even imagine what they must have felt. The crisis is also practical because it seemed like they were fresh out of options. On a practical level, they could see in a real way that things weren't adding up. The sum of all their resources would not even give these people a bite. And I think that a lot of us might have been there before. I know I have. And although I don't completely grasp the extent of what they've been through, I know for myself that I've been at the end of my rope before. And I've thought before that I am fresh out of options here. But verse 6 makes all the difference. Jesus had a plan. Jesus was not out of options. And that's why there's a third component to this whole thing. The dilemma is also spiritual. Jesus was testing Philip, not in the sense of tempting him, but in the sense of teaching him. This test was to teach Philip to trust Jesus even when things seemed bleak or hopeless. It taught him his need to expand his view of Jesus. Jesus is beyond our limitations. Jesus is beyond our imagining. And especially because the Passover is in the back of our minds here, I can't help but think of the Israelites fleeing from Egypt They're running down this path that the Lord sent them on. And then all of a sudden, they're halted at the Red Sea. And they look behind them, and this this massive Egyptian army with the chariots is descending upon them. And it seems like they're at a dead end. And I'm sure none of them anticipated that God is just going to part the sea right before them. None of them could come up with that solution. But they found out, although they were out of options, God was not out of options. And maybe someone here needs to hear that today. I know there's been times in my life when I've needed to hear that. I may be out of options, but God is not out of options. And if that's you... I want to offer you the prayer from 2 Chronicles 20:12. It gives us a simple but profound voice to our prayers in these moments. It says this simple statement, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We are trusting God for an option. 
the disciples were faced with this dilemma. And the situation was far bigger than the emotional and the practical resources that they had available with them in that moment. But there was one little detail that they had forgotten. Jesus was with them. They didn't have money with them. They didn't have a lot of energy with them. But Jesus was with them. The dilemma presented an opportunity to trust that he could provide. And the way he provided is the topic of our next stage. The climax. We read the climax in verses 8 through 13. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. In the climax stage... We watch a miracle take place at the hands of Jesus. It begins with a boy who has five loaves of bread and two fish. And at first, this has always struck me as confusing. If you're like me, you imagine a boy carrying around like five French loaves and two big perch slung over his finger. And you're thinking, that's a really big lunch for a little guy. But when we do a little historical research, we find out that the loaves being Um, described are actually more like the size of rice cakes. They're more like the size of a slice of bread, although they weren't a slice of bread because that was before Davenport, Iowa was on the scene where sliced bread was invented. It was about that size, though. And then the fish that are described, the word he uses, talk about a pickled fish. So it's more like a sardine. So imagine five little loaves and two sardines. It's a humble offering, but he hands it over to Jesus. And Jesus has the crowd sit down. And I can't help but see here the imagery of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The Lord here, Jesus, is showing that he's the shepherd. He's Yahweh. He makes them lie down in green pastures. Instead of standing in line, the food will be served to them. The book of Matthew tells us that 5,000 reflects a common Jewish custom of just counting the men. So it's actually more likely that there were closer to 20,000 people sitting down on that mountainside. Can you imagine all those people waiting there for what Jesus would do next, not knowing what he was about to do? It would be over 100 times the amount of people in this room right now, all spread out on the grass. And to give us an idea of how much food it would require, I did the math with a calculator, and it would take 7,500 large pizzas to serve a crowd this size. I I don't even know how many semis that would take 
because I couldn't find it on the internet. (laughs) This amount would serve the people, but they wouldn't even have leftovers. John, by the Holy Spirit, goes out of his way to mention the type of bread that was used. Matthew, Mark, and and Luke don't do this. It's it's a very interesting detail. He goes out of his way to mention it. So I want to go out of my way to mention it. The bread that Jesus used was made of barley. And barley bread was three times less valuable than the normal bread of that time. It was like the cheapest stuff you could find. And we know that it didn't taste very good and that it was very difficult to digest. A famous writer who lived during the time of Jesus has this quote that says, Barley was only good for irrational animals and people who had no other choice. But interestingly, this is what Jesus used to provide. It might not have been the crowd's first choice. They might have preferred T-bones or ice cream sundaes. But this is how Jesus met their needs. This is what Jesus paused to give thanks for. And it got me thinking this week of the things that I have been forgetting to give thanks for. I, I may have barley health, but I do have health. I may have a barley car, but I do have a car. I can't say to God, God, I thought I ordered a Jeep Wrangler. He, he provided a car. I may have a barley mattress, but I sleep on a mattress every night. Do, do maybe you have a barley job, but you still have a job. God has still provided. Is there something we are forgetting to give thanks for because it was not our first choice? Jesus gives thanks for barley. Have I? Have you? If Jesus could feed this huge amount of people with this humble food, it would be a miracle of unprecedented proportion. And that's exactly what he did. And it is a miracle. And it's not only an act of compassion, but it's also an act of communication. Jesus is showing us something about himself. One of the major themes in John is that what Jesus does sheds light on who he is. So what does this miracle communicate about who Jesus is? Well, remember back to Moses in the wilderness. This whole scene in John chapter 6 is reminiscent of God miraculously providing bread, manna, for the multitude in the wilderness. And this all happened under under the leadership of Moses. It's like this is a reenactment of, of manna. And now there's a new leader that comes along named Jesus. And he miraculously gives this bread to hungry people in the wilderness. It's replaying a scene from the life of Moses. There's a direct connection with one major difference. Moses never provided the bread. It was always God. But here, Jesus provided the bread. 
Jesus did what God alone has the power to do. So this miracle communicates that, that Jesus is like Moses, but far greater. And if that's true, then Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that the coming Messiah would be like Moses, but far greater. This miracle reveals to the crowd and to us that Jesus is not only compassionate, he's also the Messiah. Can you imagine the crowd sitting there, chewing on their bread, looking at Jesus as the significance of this meal begins to dawn on them? The Passover was fresh in their mind. And, and then all of a sudden, they're miraculously given this bread in the middle of the wilderness. Could this be the one who is to come, who would be like Moses, only greater? Could this be the Messiah? How would they respond? Their response is recorded in the next stage of the event, the conflict. We read in verses 14 through 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The conflict describes a turn of events. Everything was going great up to this point. There was excitement in the air. Momentum was building as they began to realize who they were dealing with. I can imagine the excited whispers that were spreading around the crowd. It's really him. This is the one. And it all leads up to verse 14, where they show that they get it. They understood what the miracle was communicating. They call Jesus the prophet who is to come. And it might be confusing that they, were, that they use the word prophet, but they're not saying, hey, Jesus is a great prophet. They used a title that only describes the Messiah. The prophet who is to come was a title for the Messiah, specifically taken from the, prof, from the prophecy that he would be like Moses, only greater. The whole narrative swells to verse 14. And then all of a sudden, deflates. The the momentum vanishes. They had just said, this is truly the Messiah. And then the next thing we know, Jesus left. We are left wondering with the crowd, what went wrong? Why did Jesus leave? Verse 15 tells us that he left because they were about to force him to be their political king. And that's not what Jesus came to do. So he had to go. It was not their declaration of Jesus as Messiah that was wrong. It was their expectation of Jesus as Messiah that was wrong. And it was not that they expected too much. It was that they expected too little. They expected him to free them from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. But he was there to free them from the tyranny of sin. The Bible says we are in bondage to sin without Jesus. And I got to tell you, it is much more destructive and much more oppressive than even the Roman Empire. They expected him to establish a political kingdom. But he was there to establish a spiritual kingdom. 
One without end. One where one day we would get to be with God in heaven and He would wipe every tear from our eyes. There would be no hunger. There would be no pain. There would be no suffering. That's the kingdom that He is establishing where we can dwell with God forever. A kingdom that we can enter by faith. They expected Him to bless them with things that don't last. But He was there to bless them not with belongings, but with belonging to God Himself as children of God. He was, he, was not, he was there to defeat Satan, not Caesar. He was there to disarm death, not the Roman army. He was there to do the Father's will, not theirs. So although it seems like maybe He's cheating them, in reality... He's preventing them from cheating themselves. As C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, we are far too easily pleased. Their expectations were way too small. Jesus had bigger plans, much bigger. And I can imagine some of the crowd walking away disappointed. It had led up to this point where they said, this is truly the Messiah. And then it collapses. And so what are they left to do? They just walk away, disappointed. But it's only because God is good. And He is doing something even better than they could grasp in that moment. And if you or I, you and I were being honest, we might admit that there are times that we get disappointed by God. And it might seem like He's cheating us. But it's crucial for us to remember that He is good. And He is doing something far better than we could maybe grasp in that moment. I am challenged by this. Do I come to God with demands or open hands? Do I come to God like a fast food drive through Or do I imagine myself sitting at his table, ready to receive what he has prepared for me. I know it's much better than what I could order. Just like the Samaritan woman from last week, the crowd saw their greatest needs as in the here and now. But Jesus saw their needs as much greater and much deeper. He saw their spiritual needs. And the cure that he offers is the focus of the final stage in our passage today. It takes place the next day. And the crowd, they track Jesus down again. And they caught up with him. And our key verse captures what Jesus said to them. It's found in John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The cure that Jesus offers is himself. It's amazing. He doesn't stand aloof and give us little goods. No, he gives us his whole self. And this is the grand takeaway of our passage. Jesus alone satisfies our souls. 
He not only provided bread for the body, he, he provides himself as bread for our souls. The crowd wanted to fill their stomachs temporarily, but he offered to fill their hearts permanently. The bread Jesus gave them satisfied their hunger for a day. But Jesus himself could satisfy their spiritual hunger forever. And the same is true for us. We all have this spiritual hunger that Jesus alone can satisfy. I think of a celebrity artist named Andrew McMahon, and he has everything that comes with being a celebrity. But he confessed in this song, this this short line, it always stuck out to me, I want to hang on to something that won't break away or fall apart. It's just an honest description of spiritual hunger. Without Jesus, we spend our days trying to fill this absence in our souls with things that don't fill this absence in our souls. Without Him, we keep searching. Our days revolve around searching for meaning, searching for love, searching for security, searching for the newest possession. A friend of mine shares in his testimony that before he trusted in Christ, his life revolved around success, popularity, and pleasure. But he said something I will never forget. He said, The more I pursued empty things, the more I found emptiness. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He alone fills this emptiness, this absence in our souls, this vacancy in our hearts. He alone can meet our deepest needs. The greatest need of all is forgiveness. Without forgiveness, we are severed from God, the source of life, and we will end up dying forever. But with forgiveness, we are connected with God, the source of life, and we will end up living forever. So he met our need for forgiveness by paying for our sins on that cross. He gave his life to give us life because he is the bread who gives life. And he gives freedom and he gives hope and he gives purpose and he gives us adoption as sons and daughters. And yes, he does give rest to the incessant search to satisfy our souls. Jesus alone satisfies our souls. The resounding witness of the multitude in John chapter 6 was that Jesus is truly the Messiah. But what went wrong was their response. They wanted a miracle that would last for a day. But Jesus offered a miracle that would last forever. New life, forgiven and freed. You and I have the opportunity to respond differently. As I invite the band to come forward, I would like all of us just to be able to pause for a moment. There's extra time that we have here. And I just wanted to be deliberate about responding and not miss this opportunity that you and I have. So I would like for all of us to resist that temptation to pack up our things and bow our heads, if you would, as I ask Three final questions to guide our response to God. In the stillness of this moment, 
I ask you to bring these questions before the Lord. Where do I stand with God today? Jesus alone can satisfy your need to be forgiven by him and brought into a hope-filled relationship with God now and forever. You can come to Jesus by believing in him. It is not a magic formula or a secret password. It comes down to believing that he died for your sins, rose again, and lives to give you new life. If this is your response, I encourage you to bring it to God with someone else in prayer. Number two, have I been living like Jesus is truly enough? Sometimes we convince ourselves that we need more than Jesus to fill our deepest needs. And I'm not talking about those real needs in our lives that God provides for in real ways, but those deeper needs that he alone can satisfy. The secret to finding contentment and resting in God is trusting that Jesus is truly enough. It's not Jesus plus this and Jesus plus that and Jesus plus this. Jesus alone satisfies our souls. Question number three. If I have been given the bread of life, how can I let others know that it's available to them as well? If you were there when Jesus multiplied the bread, would you have told others? That bread-filled stomach for a day. The bread of life fills the soul forever. And this is Jesus himself. And this is worth telling others. The crowd witnessed a great miracle. But the greatest miracle of all is that God himself came to earth to give himself, to give us life. He lives that we may live with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not miss this moment to respond to you. The worst part of our passage today is that at the end of chapter 6, people walked away without responding. So I pray that that would not be true of any of us today. That we would hear what you're calling us to. And that we would discover more and more and more that you alone satisfy. You fill the vacancy in our hearts and we can rest because you have provided for our deepest needs. God, I pray that we would go from this place ready to share others, ready to cherish you, and even ready to begin a new life with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.